0: You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. Uh, this is the second day of our uh, seven-day retreat or session. And I'm going to give a talk uh, this morning called Flowers in the Sky. And uh, this is a a Fasco in the Shobogenso written by Dogen Zenji. And he titled it Kuge. Uh, so it's a long passage. So we won't have time to read the whole thing. But I, I put up. Uh, we'll come back and look, uh, we'll come back and look at this in a moment. But um, yeah, okay. Hello. <laughs> um, so this is a um, a passage that Dogen wrote on emptiness, which, as you know, is one of the, the main teachings in the Mahayana school. We talk about it a lot. And... Um, so, uh, kuge uh, ku is a character for sky in Japanese, and it also means emptiness. So often, when you hear a Japanese teachers speaking about emptiness, they will use sky as a metaphor for emptiness. And then, gay is flowers. Kuge, um, and we have often we, we speak about the, um, the teachings on t- the two truths or the two levels of the teaching, one being conventional and one being the ultimate. And the conventional truth is is about, you know, the earth, uh, the, um, the moon is orbiting the earth and the earth is circling the sun and you are you and I am me and, Tables are tables. And uh, the other level of truth, what we call the ultimate truth, is the truth of emptiness. And here, everything is the result of causing conditions. So they are dependently originated. And therefore, they have no independent uh, existence. Everything is provisional you and I, the moon, the sun, the earth, trees, tables, everything is provisional. And the conventional truth uh, gives rise to suffering and the ultimate truth gives rise to liberation. Now this, this is Dogen, so <laughs> this is not uh, easy reading uh, or light reading. So, just to give you a heads-up before we read this first part of the passage, he's uh, in the middle, he's going to refer to uh, something that Bodhidharma said, where Bodhidharma said, From the first I came to this land to transmit the Dharma, that I might rescue deluded beings. And when the single blossom opened its five petals, the fruit thereof came about of itself. So Dogen is going to refer to that in this uh, first chapter from the Kuge. So I'm going to share the screen again and bring this up, and we'll just I'll read this with you so we can sort of take it in. The other interesting thing, because this is Dogen, uh, is that Kuge was a colloquial term in Japanese for an eye disorder, uh, cataracts. And when people have cataracts, they see things, flowers in the sky, they see things that aren't there. Uh, And so um, Dogen is always playing on so many levels when he's speaking about the Dharma. So I'm gonna share the screen again and read this with you and we'll read it fairly slowly and see if we can't take it in a little bit. Here we go. Where is it? Okay. The founder of Zen said, one flower opens with five petals forming a fruit which ripens of its own accord. So he's referring here to the founder of Zen, Chinese end, Bodhidharma. One should study the time of this flower's blooming, as well as its light and color. Uh, I can't see all this here. The multiplicity of one flower is five petals. The opening of five petals is one flower. Where the principle of one flower comes across is, and this is, he's talking about Bodhidharma again here, Where the principle of one flower comes across is, I originally came to this land to communicate the teachings and save deluded sentient beings. Where the light and color are sought must be this meditative study. It is the forming of the fruit is up to your forming of the fruit. This is called ripening of its own accord. Ripening of its own accord means cultivating the cause and experiencing the result. There is cause in the realm of common experience. There is result in the realm of common experience. Cultivating this cause and effect is the realm of common experience. One experiences cause and effect in the realm of common experience. Own is the self, the self is definitely you. It means the four gross elements and five clusters, and here he's referring to the material body of senses, five senses, skin, organs, whatnot. Because of being able to employ the true human with no position, it is not I, it is not who. Therefore, being not compulsory is called on its own. Accord is permission. Ripening of its own accord is the time of the flowers opening and the forming fruit. It is the time of communicated communicating the teachings to save, deluded, sentient beings. Oh, that was a mouthful, huh? <laughs> Welcome to my lineage, the soto lineage and so and, and We consider Dogen uh, to be uh, probably one of the greatest spiritual teachers in the world, but difficult to uh, fathom what he's talking about. So it's common, uh, emptiness is a difficult teaching. It's not only difficult for us Westerners, it was difficult for people in Asia. There's all kinds of stories of people that struggle with this teaching for years and years and years, and it's so ironic, because it's probably the, it's the thing that can't be talked about, that we talk about more than anything else, so, Uh, and it's often under, it's often misunderstood as a kind of nihilistic teaching, that everything is void, and nothing is real, and the the world is an awful place, and world denying, this is not the teaching of emptiness at all. In the Hinayana tradition, they believe that the self was empty, but not the phenomenal world. And then you have a further development in this teaching when it moves into the Mahayana school, where it's it's taught that not only is the self empty, but the phenomenal objective world is also empty. Now Cleary and uh, Nishijima translate this kuge as flower, uh, flowers in the sky, which is kind of more, we might say the kind of the conventional rendering of the title, but Nishi, uh, um, Nishi, Nishiyama's translation of the title is flowers in space, which is sort of pointing more at the ultimate meaning. Or, uh, no, I'm sorry, he says flowers, uh, Cleary translates it as flowers in the sky, Nishijima translates it as flowers in space, and then Nishiyama translates it as the flowers of emptiness. The phrase that's uh, used over and over here is uh, proceeding of its own accord, which has lots of resonance with Taoist teachings of being in harmony, being uh, in accord with the way. And there was a very important teaching in the Taoist tradition of Wu Wei, which is uh, uh, no action, Uh, action with no action. Action with no... uh, Uh, with no outcome intended. Wu Wei, the very important uh, teaching in Taoism was considered that when you were in accord with the way, you would act spontaneously in a way that was appropriate and in harmony with the way or with the universe. Um, Emptiness is not an abstraction. It might sound like it. Uh, it's not a principle of ontology or epistemology. Uh, emptiness is what makes our lives meaningful. Buddhism is a soteriological religion. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. Soteriological religion, that means a religion that is based on salvation. Buddhism is concerned with being saved from the delusion of samsara. Um, Buddhism isn't just making statements about existence. So this teaching of emptiness isn't just an observation about The nature of reality. It's something about the nature of liberation, of being liberated from suffering. It's about how to live a spiritual life. Religion always starts with the largest whole, and materialism starts with the parts and tries to assemble them into the whole. Um, to tell, to know what something is made of tells you nothing about the meaning of that, that thing, nothing. Meaning is found by always by finding a larger context by contextualizing. So in the, for instance, in the, in the mindfulness classes that we teach here at the Zen center, we teach two primary developments in meditation, one one pointed attention, so we're learning to, to cut through the speediness of our mind and pay attention to one thing at a time. And then uh, open awareness, or vipassana is really the beginning of, 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 beginning to bring context into this, into our meditation practice beginning to see that mindfulness is about a larger context. And this is also bringing in the very important aspect of religion. Uh, Meaning it's always about a larger context. And if you wanna find the largest context, look no further than emptiness. It doesn't get much larger than emptiness. Emptiness is, we can't even say what the size of emptiness is. It's much more akin to infinity. And nothing is excluded from emptiness. Uh, But, you know, we're now in the realm of metaphysics. Metaphysics is about things that aren't material. It's It's a way of talking about things that aren't in the physical world. And religion is, you can't have religion without metaphysics. Now, I have to share with you uh, my own, uh, uh, I am, my, the early way I talked about Buddhism was so arrogant and so, uh, I think, actually misguided. I used to always, I can't count how many times I used to say, you know, Buddha didn't care about metaphysics because I was speculating about things that were important. He was always interested in the empirical things right in front of him. I said that a hundred times. Buddha was actually interested in former lives and future lives. He didn't maybe talk about reincarnation. But it's not possible to talk about Buddhism without talking about metaphysics. Emptiness is a metaphysical notion. The other shore is a metaphysical notion. It doesn't exist in the real world in terms of objects. You can't have religion without metaphysics. And that kind of brings me to, for for me anyway, a kind of dawning realization as I've gotten older and as I've been teaching, and we've been teaching mindfulness that a lot of the mindfulness being taught now in our culture, we would we refer in a kind of derogatory way as "mic" mindfulness. And I think, uh, and I, the more I see that happening in the culture, the more kind of uh, disappointed I am in the outcome. Because we live in a postmodern culture, which is really has reduced religion down to something very small and that reductionism is uh comes about because what we what we have faith in is empirical science some people do (laughs) not everyone but uh we are a, a culture that uh believes in in empirical proof and uh we don't there's a huge distrust of religion in our culture now, and there's some many there's some good reasons for that, and there's also a huge distrust in metaphysics. So it's very common to teach Buddhism and especially mindfulness as some kind of a pseudo scientific spirituality, which I think is really misguided. It's good to use science to confirm aspects of of the brain and the body and our uh, physiology and, and psychology, all that is useful, but it's not religion. And if mindfulness is not taught in the context of religion, it is far away from the teachings of Buddhism. Meaning is never found in reducing things down to their parts. So we're presented with this fascible flowers in the sky. And I want to share the screen again and say, uh, I just took another piece of the writing of Dogen's song, and then we'll talk about it. There has not yet been a scholar who has understood this statement because they do not know the sky, they don't know the flowers in the sky because they don't know the flowers in the sky, they don't know the person with cataracts. They do not see the person with cataracts, do not meet the person with cataracts are not the person with cataracts. One should meet the person with cataracts, know the sky and see the flowers in the sky too. After seeing the flowers in the sky, one should also see the flowers perish in the sky. To think that once the flowers in the sky ceased, they should not exist anymore, is the view of a small vehicle. Uh, He's referring to the Hinayana school or the Theravada tradition. If the flowers in the sky were not seen, what would they be? Those with the view of the small vehicle only know flowers in the sky as something to be abandoned and do not know the great matter after the flowers in the sky. They do not know the planting, ripening, and shedding of the flowers in the sky." <laughs> Another mouthful. <laughs> but uh, actually, I think Dogan's really getting at something here that's very important. We're a little... Overgeneralizing a little bit to accuse Hinayana of being concerned with personal liberation, but that's at least that's a stereotypical view, and that tends to be the emphasis in Hinayana is uh, uh, one's personal liberation, whereas in the Mahayana school, we have the Bodhisattva vow, which is concerned with saving all sentient beings, not just yourself. In order to save yourself, you have to save everyone. And uh, when you reduce metaphysics down, as as the way our culture does, when you reduce mindfulness down to uh, something that is no longer taught in the context of waking up, of liberation from suffering, then you end up with a technique. You end up with a method. That may be very comforting, but it really misses the point completely. From the point of view of religion, it misses the point. If you wanna teach mindfulness as a therapy, it's fine, but that's not what we're teaching here at the Zen Center. So people like to say that Buddhism is about cause and effect because it sounds very scientific. Uh, But the logic of cause and effect in science is a zero sum game. That's not bad. One plus one equals two. Because of logic, we have airplanes that fly in the air and that's not trivial so the logic of science the logic of physics is important we're not discounting that at all but it's not the logic of the dharma in the world of the spirit In the world of flowers in the sky, one plus one doesn't need to equal two. It could equal a million. Think of the parable of Jesus feeding the people with the loaves of bread. In the Gospel of John, it's reported that Jesus used five loaves of bread and two fishes that were supplied by a boy to feed a multitude of some, it said like 5,000 people. He took the loaves and the two fishes and looked up to heaven and gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. And the number, number of those who ate is said to have been around 5,000 people. <laughs> That's not the logic of physics. That's the logic of the spirit. One plus one doesn't need to equal two in the world of spirit because emptiness functions like infinity. So it doesn't obey the rules of physics. It's metaphysical. I have to tell you another funny story about metaphysics. When I was younger, I was really down on metaphysics, as I said before. And um, when Maizumi Roshi died, uh, June and I... Uh, We we went to, uh, flew from Hawaii to L.A. and I I flew there in advance about for a week. I helped plan uh, Maizumi Roshi's funeral, which was uh, done in Little Tokyo. And it was very complicated and uh, a big deal. And a lot of people came from all over the world. And after the, uh, and June even danced Tula there after the, and when we had a dinner afterwards and uh, all of Mazumi Roshi's brothers were there, Bernie was there, all of Mazumi Roshi's successors were there. It was a sad and tender time. And uh, afterwards, we drove Flora Courtois back to her home in Santa Barbara. And Flora was one of the first um, board members of the Zen Center in Los Angeles. And Flora, uh, she was a scientist She was one of the pioneers of biofeedback. And she wrote a little tiny book that we have somewhere in our library. I forget the the title of it, but when she was in college uh, in her, must've been her early twenties, she started asking this question, who am I? And she kept asking it over and over and over. And she eventually had a Kencho experience where she had a profound opening of being, waking up and she didn't know what to do with that. And when, this was in the early days before Zen was really, or Buddhism was very well known in the culture. This would have been maybe the fifties or the early sixties. So, uh, and she tried to talk about it, which was a mistake because then people thought she was crazy. And she didn't have anyone to talk to that would have been able to help her put that in some kind of context. So for many years, she just thought she was crazy. And then many years later, when uh, Mizumi Roshi came to this country and then he brought over Yasutani Roshi, uh, she talked to, she had an interview with Yasutani Roshi and he confirmed that she had had a Kensho. And so uh, she wrote about that and um, and the funny thing about, about Flora was she. we had this long talk on the way home from the funeral in the car. And she said, Joshin, you got to study metaphysics. I said, well, why do I got to study metaphysics, Flora? That's just speculative stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with Zen. Zen is about the here and now. She says, oh, no, you, sh- you should read about metaphysics. And she gave me some. German guy Schuler or somebody to read and he was so dense and thick I couldn't I couldn't get through the first chapters and I bought all his books and I couldn't read any of them. But now as I reflect back on on that I see the wisdom of her suggesting that I I learn about metaphysics because I see now that. Uh, all the teachings of, of Buddhism and Zen and Dogen are are about metaphysics. And yet, we discount that in our culture. But you can't have religion without metaphysics. You can't have the other shore. The other shore is a metaphysical notion. Emptiness is a metaphysical notion. It's not in the physical world. So I think we've done a profound disservice in our our postmodern reductionist culture of taking away demythologizing religion. There's some really good reasons to be suspicious of religion. There are aspects of religion which need to be roundly criticized, especially organizational and institutional religion. But religion itself, Buddhism is one of the world's great religions. But it's a religion that is concerned with being with uh, salvation, with being liberated from suffering. And that is the point. And that is the point of this passage from Dogen, flowers Flowers in the Sky. So if you're talking about logic, one plus one equals two. In physics, that's true, but not in the Dharma. One plus one can equal a million. The Dharma is a force multiplier. Think of the think of the milk, the girl that the young girl that gave the milk to the to Buddha when he was almost dead. That one small act gave birth to civilizations. That was a force multiplier in the gate of sweet nectar we chant raising the bodhi mind the supreme meal is offered to all the hungry spirits throughout space and time filling the smallest particle to the largest space So Dogen says that ordinary people think that flowers in the sky is a product of a clouded mind. And because it's Dogen, he's so nuanced. He's also saying the clouded mind is an eye disease of cataracts. But we think, especially if we're coming from a point of view like the Hinayana, that what needs to happen then is to uncloud the sky and to keep it unclouded and that that's what emptiness is about. And that's, that's not what Dogen is saying at all. It's about, the, it's about the clouded sky. It's about the cataracts. It's not about removing that. Nothing needs to be removed. But when we reduce things down to techniques and methods, this is what we call spiritual materialism. It's trying to apply the laws of physics to the spirit. And it's a kind of reductionist uh, reductionism that does real damage to the spirit. When there is Buddha Dharma, There is no thought of getting anything, and yet the sky and the ground are covered with flowers. Everything is motivated by faith and basic goodness. It doesn't matter what the activity is, scale does not apply here. Love is not measurable. Compassion has no value or price in the marketplace. You cannot legislate sympathy. So these flowers fall in their own way and they do so abundantly when we least expect it. Dogen speaks of the flowers ripening of their own accord. And there's a uh, later part of the text where Dogen relates a story of uh, Fuyo Reikun, who asked, Fuyo Reikun asked, um, what is Buddha? And Dharma Master Kiso Chijo said, if I tell you, will you believe me or not? Reikun replied, how could I not believe the Master's honest words? And And the Master said to him, you yourself are just it. And then he said to his teacher, How should I maintain it? And the teacher said, When an instance of cloudiness is there in the eyes, flowers and space tumble down. So again, most people think emptiness is about removing the clouds from the sky. If Rekin or you and I could trust that teacher's words, we wouldn't be so anxious about maintaining something. We all have clouded eyes. Some of us may even get cataracts eventually. Even if the sky clears, soon there will be clouds again. How could we possibly have a a sky that's free of clouds? Why would you want a sky free of clouds? What kind of sky would that be? It'd be a desert. So, A good person doesn't do good things out of some calculation for a reward. Their goodness is already there in their faith. And religion really provides us that kind of support to have that faith in what's important, in what's enduring, what values are important. Compassion, love... Generosity. So religion touches the depths of who we are, who we can be. It's not a hobby. And it's not a means or a technique. One who needs to bargain with God has little faith. When God is God, there is no bargaining. When Buddha is Buddha, one is loved infinitely. From emptiness or from the absolute come riches that are unearned, unmade, and unconditioned. If this were not so, there would be no freedom. There would be no liberation from suffering. When you have faith in what's important for Buddhists, we have faith in the three treasures. Again, a metaphysical idea. The absolute, the relative, harmony. When we have faith in basic principles, When we are able to take refuge in that and orient our life from those large teachings, then we become more ourselves, more sincere, more genuine. You're able to sing your own life song, and it's your song that you're singing. And you all of a sudden discover that you have this song to sing. No one else is going to sing that song. You're going to sing it your way. And it comes from emptiness. Meaning comes from context, from a larger context. There's no larger context than emptiness. And can't, We can't see it. We can't prove it. But religion is, doesn't need that kind of proof. Religion needs faith. To rely on emptiness is to rely on faith in something larger than my own conceit, my own arrogance, my own what I think is right or wrong, or my own opinion. It's to rely on something larger than that, than me. Larger than what than my conditioned experience. And having faith in that which is unconditioned, gives me support so that I can be a better person. The basic principle of Buddhism is that something comes from nothing. That's the force multiplier of the Bodhisattva vow. Actions arise out of nothing, wu-wei. To live by faith is to ask for nothing. True love is unconditional and uh, drinks deeply from the absolute. What Buddhism calls the other shore. There is... Ordinary virtue, and then there is other shore virtue. Both are wonderful. Any virtue is wonderful. There is dana, which means generosity, and then there's dana paramita. There is patience or kashanti, and then there's kashanti paramita. The difference is whether there is an idea of idea of self or gain or achievement involved in that activity or not. And when there's no gaining idea in the giving, no idea of achievement in the patience, that's the paramita. And that paramita is a force multiplier because it doesn't conform to one plus one equals two. I think when we start to get a sense of what's possible and the good fortune we have to be on a spiritual path as we are, There's some sense of gratitude that comes up that we've heard these teachings, that they enrich our lives enormously and enrich the people around us, enrich our community. And we just begin to appreciate how much we have been given in this life, how often we have been touched and held by others and and helped and supported and nurtured by other sentient beings. And uh, this is the fullness of emptiness. So, we don't have to be conscious of our goodness. Uh, In fact, I think for the most part, once we have internalized this practice and these teachings, it's unconscious in many ways. So emptiness means to be empty of greed, hate, delusion. And it's to be free of contrivance and conceit. The purer love, the purer the love, the more empty it is. The more empty it is, the greater the effect. So the less there is before, the more there is afterwards. So we have some time for uh, discussions or questions or comments. Okay, you bodhisattvas. What do you have to say for yourself?
1: Yeah, Chris? Um, I get so hung up on religion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And you said um, in your talk, one time you said there's religion and there's organized religion. Yeah. And and I'm just interested in what you, you know, if you could say a word or two more about the distinction in your mind about that.
0: You know, religion organizes itself in one way or another. The Buddha organized himself and his disciples, so... um, You know, I I understand the word has baggage, and it's not a word that we're fond of in our culture. So you might replace the word spiritual with religion, and that might make it more palatable for you. But, you know, let's face it, religion has a lot of baggage. It's been full of superstition and hocus pocus and things that uh, it's done a lot of damage in the world as well, but it's also done a lot of good. So uh, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater.
1: No, I def- I want to work with it. I definitely yep. work with with my own resistance to. Uh-huh. Um, it, so- I think that uh, I think what's important here, and I think
0: it's not an easy. I think it's something we all have to kind of work with, is that when we speak of spirituality, we tend to define that as an individual path. It's, it feels like it's individual, and I think there's something larger here. That we need to appreciate, which is religion is a, uh, an even organized religion, is an activity of a community, uh, having rituals and practices and rites of passage that support the life of that community and the teachings that 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 bring it together as a community. So. I think you can't get around religion because religion is the collective practice of spirituality. And even if there's a lot of baggage there and it's not always done well, and it's sometimes done harmfully, doesn't discount the fact that we still have a huge need as human beings to organize uh, and to confirm and support our faith in the spirit. Uh, which then is what religion is really about.
1: Thank you. That's really helpful.
0: Hi, Patrick. Yeah. Morning, Roshi. Uh, Did you say uh, Buddhism um, is something comes from nothing? Yeah. But isn't that a direct contradiction of causes and conditions? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It's not the law of physics, that's for sure. It's Jesus uh, multiplying the loaves of bread and feeding the multitudes. How did he do that? Roshi, you had said something about um, liberation being action without intended outcome and yeah. that's something that's been kind of resonating with me in the idea of like
2: um, emptiness as being creative does can you tie those together or do you see that
0: well because there's emptiness we we can have a faith in letting go of our attachment to the outcome and trust that when we act in a, with a pure intention in that way, that the outcome will be fruitful. But we don't have to be so uh, holding it so tightly in terms of needing to control it. We could sort of trust that the universe will, will pull us along. And uh, that, that requires trust. Um, but any of the paramitas, if you take the paramita of energy, Uh, You know, really the teaching there is uh, we need to have anyone that's done this practice know it requires an enormous amount of energy to to do something so simple as sitting still on a cushion. But it's energy uh, that is not directed towards an outcome. So like when we do Samu work practice in a retreat like this, if you're doing it at home, the the spirit of that is just to put yourself into what you're doing. If you're washing the dishes... You just wash the dishes. You don't wash them to get them done. And you find that when you work in a kind of, uh, when you are one with what you're doing in that way, you get a lot done, but you're not worrying about getting it done. You don't have deadlines like you do in the work world. And you just get a lot done because you're on the spot and you're doing it. And I think that's uh, what we're talking about here is that you could trust that your activity is the activity of the Bodhisattva. And that you, the 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 outcome will be fruitful if you do it with a pure intention. Yeah. Yeah, Jackie. Good morning.
1: morning. morning. Sorry,
0: that sorry, was my. Morning.
1: Morning.
0: You have an echo on your thing. Maybe it's because Patrick
1: and you are yeah, together. Okay. Is that okay? Is that better? I'm That's sorry. Better. Yeah. Um, this idea that you mentioned, and I'm going to paraphrase it, about religion is supposed to support the goodness that can, comes out naturally
0: yes. in
1: me. That's a new idea for me because it's always been the other way. I have to behave in a way that supports religious rigidity
0: Yes, and I think that's the baggage of religion that we all react to. The the way that religion creates rules and dogmas and things we have to do to even the teachings of compassion in much of religion are are not inspiring. They create guilt because I'm not compassionate enough. So I, I think there's good reason to be skeptical of religion, but at the same time, like I said, I think the the um, the activity of a community that is religious, such as ours, is a, is an activity that supports each of its members each of us to to have faith in, in in these teachings because we see the goodness in 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 our sangha members. We we see it in each other, and that inspires each of us to keep going and to to um, deal with challenges and difficulties because we see others doing it as well. So I, you might just say it's a, I think it's the power of sangha and community really. But if you wanna have a sangha in a community, you have to organize something to do it. And you end up with institutions. Again, we live in a time when institutions are being destroyed before our eyes. Uh, all kinds of institutions, and we don't have much faith in institutions or authority figures. And I think a lot of that comes out of a kind of postmodern culture. But if we're going to build anything that is, um, supports others, we have to build something that is, looks like an institution that's organized and has norms and procedures and ways of doing things. And we can do, I think it's possible to do that skillfully. And it's possible to do that in ways that are really not skillful at all, that create uh, a kind of rigid conformity and fear. And um, so it, there's different kinds of religion, I suppose, different ways of organizing. But I, I again, the distinction I'm making, and I'm, there are people that have spiritual paths that are completely individual. They're almost like hermits. In Buddhism, they call it the left-handed path and the right-handed path. And people on the left-handed path tend to be like artists and their individuals are off here doing their thing. And they're never going to want to do a service with other people or any kind of rituals. And they're not going to join in sangha activities. And it's okay. We need hermits. We need Thomas Mertens and monasteries, people that do that. But the vast majority of us have families and communities and live in the valleys. And we want good education for our kids. And so we organize communities to support those things that we value. And if you go into any Black community, you'll find the heart of that community is usually the church. Usually the church. In in communities that are poor, where they are struggling, where there's violence and murder and people getting shot, the heart of that community is going to be the church. So, uh, I, you know, I don't have any easy answers, but I think it's important to make a distinction between a spirituality which is private and a, and a religion which is collective and addressing and able to address more. We can't address the kind of issues that we're facing systemic racism or the environment without a collective organizing of, of our, our efforts. And one way of doing that is through religion there's other ways too. I happen to, you know, be a priest, so that the way I think of organizing is through, you know, the Zen center, but other people, it doesn't mean that people can't organize in other different ways too, but uh, for me, religion is important, and I, I haven't always felt that. Yeah, Mark, you should
2: Sorry, I forgot to unmute. And uh, good morning, everybody. I'm sorry, I was a little little late um, getting on. So I missed the first part of your talk, Roshi, but I want to comment about um, uh, we know that Shakyamuni Buddha was greeted by four or five former ascetics, and that became his Sangha. And then ultimately, When he held up the flower, there were thousands and thousands of people there. And Mashkapa was the only one who recognized that. But, you know, uh, I think we can go back 2,500, 2,600 years now and see that there was organized religion through the Sangha. Um, The other thing I wanted to comment comment on, if I can, and, you know, I love uh, how things just happen. Um, uh, Like June, I'm studying uh, Mountains and Rivers Sutra and with my with my Dogen group and um just yesterday we spent an hour and a half on this line that i want to read to you it's the very first beginning of the sutra um because mountains and waters have been active before the empty eon they are alive at this moment before anything existed the mountains existed and then he goes on because they have been the self since before form arose, they are emancipation actualized. So the mountains were there before everything, and so were we. You know, and that's a powerful metaphysical idea. <laughs> I think that's why we took an hour and a half on that. Nobody could get their arms around it, you know. And I, I just love it that uh, you talked about this today, and it, it meant so much to me to... Expand my openness because that's exactly what sitting does, too, doesn't it? Yeah, so thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Shishan. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, um, just a minute, Tachana, and I'll get to you. I, I think, again, one of the things that goes by the wayside in our postmodern culture is any uh, notion of cosmic uh, things or large cosmic beings, and we just discount all of that which is to discount a huge part of the Buddhist teachings, because the Buddhists, if you read any of the sutras, you know, they have a very large vision of the cosmos, and it's like <laughs> it goes on with hundreds of bodhisattvas and beings in the ten directions. And the Buddha uh, talked about former lives, and he talked about future lives, and even though we're uh, kind of caught in the tyranny of now with the way we think about mindfulness, I think actually the Buddha was thinking long-term. And I think his view was long-term for the long-term liberation of people long-term. And so uh, there's this very large cosmic vision in Buddhism that uh, again, just gets reduced down in our culture. And I think we miss a lot of the richness that there are in the Pure Land religion, uh, Amida Buddha is there always to be of service to you and you can call out and you can have a kind of uh, uh, aspirational devotion to that deity and that deity can support you. But you have to have a kind of uh, bhakti uh, worshiping energy, which uh, is not real common in Zen, (laughs) but uh, anyway, I think it, this notion of of time in Buddhism is when they speak about time in Buddhism, there's, they speak about like a kalpa, which is this unimaginable, you know, the metaphors they use for a kalpa is like this huge rock mountain that's 16 miles by 16 miles. And uh, a kalpa is the amount of, if a feather came down and they swipe, you swipe that feather, feather on that rock, that mountain, every hundred years, a kalpa would be the amount of time it took to wear down that mountain. (laughs) That's how big a kalpa is. The Buddha didn't measure things. He didn't say it was like four billion years. He just gave that kind of uh, analogy. So that's the kind of time frame we're speaking of in Buddhism. And I think, again, it, it just flies in the face of our culture, which wants everything to be now. And actually, I think, in many ways, Buddha was teaching about how we could be corrupted in the now uh, if we didn't uh, remember. And mindfulness was really about remembering what's important, precepts, values. So I just think there's so many things we've taken out of Buddhism and, and lost that they need to be retrieved and valued. So I appreciate your studying Dogen, Shishun. I think it's wonderful. Hope you keep sharing with us about Dogen.
2: Thank you, R- Roshi. Could I just say one more thing? You uh, Just real quick, you said something about the importance of Sangha when individuals are struggling or suffering or have things going on, and that is very meaningful for Pat and me right now, as you know. And that uh, we feel the Sangha right now. We really feel the Sangha.
0: And we're praying for Pat's brother, yeah. Now it's gotta be difficult. Tatiana.
1: So I wanted to make a comment about the religion and organized religion distinction. When you mentioned that, it um, it occurred to me that um, just as we have ourselves and our organized selves, which are our egos, which have their value, but then again are also problematic, so likewise organized religion versus religion could be seen as its ego aspect and something that should be looked at. Cautiously and comes with a lot of baggage, but also is oftentimes necessary. So I think that the analogy could perhaps be applied. Just what occurred to me now. Thank you.
0: It's it's good to be skeptical. It's good to question authority. It's good to question institutions. So, anything else before we close? Okay. So, um, please uh, send your prayers to Pat's brother, who is in the hospital and struggling. MG is just got is getting over um, being sick with the virus, and she's on the other end of it, but. She had a light case of it. And so please support each other in these really, really difficult times. And one of the best ways we can support each other is this simple practice of sitting in silent meditation together. It's the most meaningful way to be together. And... um, Maybe one of the, even though we're here on a screen looking at each other in our, in these boxes, we can still, some kind of intimacy comes through in this practice. It's not quite the same as when we're physically together. June and me were just remarking on it other, the other day. This in some ways seems kind of sterile compared to being in person. But uh, there's ways that this can be intimate too. And I feel this intimacy with you when when I'm sitting with you. So uh, I appreciate each of you participating in this retreat. It is really the way to turn the Dharma wheel and it's the way to um, activate your faith and make it alive and real, not not something hypothetical or theoretical, but a a living practice, a living faith. Okay, thank you, have a good lunch. We'll see you at, those of you that are full-time, we'll see you at 3. And uh, those of you that are full-time should know that uh, starting today, if you wish to, you have the option of doing practice of immediacy uh, from 3 to 4.30 or parts of that time, you could do this practice of immediate, or you could come back, we'll have the Zoom link open so you can sit here. And uh, if you haven't done practices of immediacy before, you're simply using any art medium that you choose, drawing, painting, dance, music, poetry, journaling, and you're using that activity to mirror back what your present state of mind actually is. So it's actually a, a really wonderful way to deepen your meditation practice, and you might be surprised. I encourage you to try it out. Even if you're part-time and you have some time, you might just take an out, set aside an hour to be with yourself in this way and, and see what comes up for you. Okay. Mazel tov. <laughs> Bye.
1: <laughs> that was sweet. <laughs>